You're listening to The Last Full Measure with Carter McNish on Radio Free Hillsdale, a show dedicated to sharing the stories of our nation's greatest battles in which Hillsdaleans fought. This week, we discuss the Peninsular Campaign and the battle that put Hillsdale soldiers on the map, Gaines Mill. March, 1862. The Army of the Potomac, commanded by General George McClellan, lands at Fort Monroe, a Union outpost in Virginia across the James River from Norfolk. General McClellan plans to use the fort, which the Confederates had left in Union hands because of its strong defenses, as the base for his new campaign. After the Battle of Bull Run a year earlier, the Union Army had retreated into the ring of forts that surrounded Washington, D.C. to rest and lick its wounds. The Confederates, meanwhile, had set about reinforcing their own defenses in Virginia, deploying tens of thousands of new troops to the theater. During this lull in action, President Lincoln looked for a new Union commander, preferably one with a bold and initiative plan to bring the war to a swift conclusion. He found his man in General George McClellan. McClellan, aged only 35, was a graduate of West Point who served with distinction in the Mexican-American War before leaving the Army to become a railroad tycoon. Upon rejoining the Army at the outbreak of the Civil War, he presented Lincoln with exactly the kind of bold plan Lincoln wanted. McClellan would split the Army into two parts. One called the Army of the Potomac, and led by McClellan personally, would embark on ships at Washington, D.C., sail down the Chesapeake to Fort Monroe, which was still in Union hands, and there advance up the Virginia Peninsula between the James and York Rivers toward Richmond. This would allow him to bypass the main Confederate armies camped near Manassas Junction and in the Shenandoah Valley, instead making a rapid dash for Richmond behind them. The second, slightly smaller group, called the Army of Virginia, led by General John Pope, would take the land route, advancing in much the same way the Union Army had on its ill-fated adventure towards Bull Run. The Army of Virginia's job was to distract as many Confederate units as possible, either keeping them off McClellan's force entirely or keeping a large part of the Confederate force occupied, making McClellan's job much easier. Lincoln approved the plan, and on March 17, 1862, the Army of the Potomac set sail from Alexandria, Virginia, across the Potomac River from Washington, and made its way down to Fort Monroe. The short journey only took a day, with the first ships unloading that same night. Transporting all of the 121,000 men, 264 cannons, 1,150 wagons, and over 15,000 horses took time, however, and it was only on April 4th, 18 days later, that McClellan began his advance on Richmond. The Confederates had not been idle, and the next day, elements of General Erasmus D. Key's IV Corps made contact with the Confederate defensive line set up by General John Magruder. Magruder had two divisions under his command, manning a line that stretched all the way across the peninsula from the town of Yorktown in the north, site of the famous victory of George Washington over Cornwallis, to the James River in the south. Magruder, playing for time, tried to make his force seem larger than it was. He ordered a company of infantry to march in circles inside a patch of woods, giving the appearance that a constant stream of reinforcements was arriving. He also ordered his artillery to spread out and fire sporadically at the Union line. Both ploys tricked Union commanders into thinking that Magruder's force was around 100,000 men strong, only slightly smaller than McClellan's, when in reality, Magruder was outnumbered by over 10 to 1. McClellan, not wanting to waste what he thought was the best opportunity to take Richmond by throwing his army rashly against a strong Confederate force, made preparations for a siege of Yorktown. The irony was, of course, that by doing so, he was in fact throwing away that very same opportunity. On April 16th, McClellan made his first move, ordering the 4th Corps to advance and attack the Confederate line at a place called Lee's Mill. General Keyes ordered his 2nd Division, under General Smith, to attack the position. One of the regiments in the attack, the 5th Vermont, 
included Hillsdalian Frederick Belden. Belden and his comrades crossed the Warwick River and in a fierce firefight drove the Confederates from their trenches. However, minutes later, a fierce Confederate counterattack forced Belden and the Vermonters back across the river with heavy losses. Some of the men, being wounded while wading back across the river, drowned under the weight of their gear. The line reverted back to a stalemate. Meanwhile, General Pope's Army of Virginia was no more aggressive. It had in fact moved little since it had been left alone in Washington, and had done nothing whatsoever to attract Confederate concern or even attention. This inaction convinced overall Confederate commander Joseph Johnston to move almost his entire force to face McClellan near Richmond, leaving a token force to guard against an advance by Pope down the main road from D.C. Johnston ordered Magruder to fall back further toward Richmond and await further reinforcements. McClellan was pleasantly surprised that before he had even completed preparations for the siege of Yorktown, the Confederate force had already retreated. McClellan resumed his advance, but, wary of what he thought was a Confederate army similar in strength to his own, he advanced cautiously up the peninsula. Making sure to keep his supply lines open and well guarded, he also made sure that none of his units advanced too far ahead so as to avoid them being caught unprepared and outside of range of reinforcements. The army became weary of the sloth-like pace of the advance, and soon nicknamed McClellan the Virginia Creeper, after a native vine of the same name. A slow advance, while agonizing for Union troops, was a godsend for the Confederates. By the time Union troops encountered Magruder's second line, just east of the old colonial-era town of Williamsburg, another Confederate corps, under the command of General James Longstreet, had arrived, doubling the Confederates' strength. The two armies prepared for battle on this new line. For the Union, the objective was to break through to Richmond as soon as possible, for the Confederates to hold on until the last of Johnston's reinforcements could arrive to bolster the defense. McClellan once again decided to make painstaking and time-consuming preparations to assure victory rather than take immediate action. Through the rest of April, the Union Army sat in its trenches opposite Williamsburg, setting up artillery batteries and securing supply lines. Meanwhile, Johnston, who had arrived on the scene and taken direct command of the Confederate Army on the peninsula, personally oversaw the strengthening of his defenses, while a steady stream of reinforcements arrived, bolstering his force to around 57,000 men. While his force was still outnumbered two to one, Johnston's superior position evened the odds somewhat, but Johnston knew that he could only hold on for as long as Union heavy artillery were unable to fire. Once the Union guns opened up, Johnston knew his days were numbered. On May 3rd, Johnston made up his mind. Seeing the Union batteries had nearly been completed, Johnston ordered his army to abandon Williamsburg and head west for a stronger defensive line nearer to the Confederate capital. The delay at Williamsburg had been enough, as Johnston was still playing for time at this point. Around half of the Confederate troops in Virginia were still very far away from Richmond, and Johnston did not want to fight McClellan without them. The troops in question were 17,000 men under the command of General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson. Jackson had earned his nickname at the Battle of Bull Run a year earlier, when his brigade turned the tide of the battle in the Confederacy's favor. Now, Jackson was engaged in a brilliant campaign to clear out Union troops from the Shenandoah Valley. Once he was finished with this task, he would march to Richmond. But as with everyone else on the Confederate side, what he needed was more time, and Johnston was determined to give it to him. On the next day, May 4th, McClellan heard from his scouts that the Confederates had vanished, apparently headed west. McClellan, for once acting quickly and decisively, ordered a rapid pursuit. On May 5th, Union and Confederate cavalry clashed along the roads heading west. The Confederate cavalry, under the command of General Jeb Stuart, held valiantly, guarding the path of escape for many of the Confederates. 
Soon, however, Stuart's cavalry began to be pushed back by the weight of Union numbers, and Johnston was forced to deploy Longstreet's corps back to help Stuart. Longstreet's men reoccupied their fortifications around the earthen fort named Fort Magruder after the general of the same name. General Joseph Hooker's 2nd Division of the 3rd Corps attacked the fort and managed to take the first line of trenches before being driven back by a Confederate counterattack. Hooker requested reinforcements, but did not receive any until late in the day. By nightfall, fighting had stopped, and Longstreet's men once again disappeared into the night. The first battle of the Peninsula Campaign was over, and McClellan was still firmly set on taking Richmond. Over the next three weeks, the two armies maneuvered into position around the outskirts of Richmond, setting up positions on opposite sides of the Chickahominy River, north of the city. McClellan's army was now less than 10 miles from the Confederate capital, and for Johnston, the situation looked dire. Jackson was still busy in the Shenandoah Valley. McClellan's army outnumbered him by three to two, and Johnston could not pull any troops away from other sectors to help defend Richmond. Johnston decided that since he could not win in a siege, that the best course of action would be to attack McClellan. It was an all-or-nothing gamble. If Johnston succeeded, Richmond would be saved. Should he fail, the war would almost certainly be lost. Johnston decided to attack a section of the Union line that had extended south of the Chickahominy River towards the crossroads called Seven Pines. On May 31st, he launched his attack. The men of Longstreet's Corps once again faced the brunt of the fighting. They advanced up the roads towards Seven Pines, running headfirst into the Union Fourth Corps. The fighting began late in the afternoon due to delays and confusing orders, but the Confederates soon overwhelmed the Fourth Corps. The Fifth Vermont, with Hillsdalian Frederick Belden among them, faced off against Daniel Harvey Hill's division and came out the worse for it. They were beaten back with heavy loss, though, thankfully, Belden came out unharmed for the second time in just a few weeks. Hearing the fighting and receiving reports of the unfolding disaster south of the Chickahominy, Union General John Sedgwick, acting on his own initiative, marched his division south over the only remaining bridge across the Chickahominy. Sedgwick's men slammed into the left flank of Longstreet's corps, halting the Confederate advance and in the process saving the 4th Corps from destruction. General Johnston, hearing of the unexpected counterattack, rode with his staff to the front to personally direct the battle and ensure victory despite the setback. However, as Johnston was working to organize a counterattack to drive Sedgwick's division from Seven Pines and win the battle, Johnston was hit by a Union bullet falling from his horse, badly wounded. With Johnston out of the fight and darkness closing in, the Battle of Seven Pines ended again with a stalemate. That night, the Confederate army was faced with a difficult dilemma. Johnston's physicians, though confident of his survival, said that the general would have to remain in the hospital for months to make a full recovery. The Confederate army was in need of a new commander, and one that would be capable of pulling off one of the greatest comebacks in military history. The Confederate government appointed General Robert E. Lee to this unenviable task, and though they did not know it yet, Lee's reputation would soon outshine even the renowned Johnston's. For a month after the Battle of Seven Pines, the two armies adjusted their positions, dug trenches, and waited. McClellan, frightened by the weakness on his left exposed by Johnston's attack, shifted all of his army, except for Fitz John Porter's V Corps, south of the Chickahominy River. Lee was not idle either. He extended his line down south all the way to the James River and awaited the arrival of Jackson's troops that were now on their way from the Shenandoah Valley, having defeated the Union armies there. Lee, knowing that at any moment General Pope's Union Army of Virginia could show up and double the Union strength, decided, like Johnston at Seven Pines, to attack as soon as Jackson arrived. Jackson and his foot cavalry 
made the 150-mile march to Richmond in less than a week, arriving northwest of the city on June 24th. Lee planned to attack the next day, but McClellan, made aware of Jackson's presence nearby, preempted him and attacked north of the Chickahominy River on the morning of the 25th. A small battle ensued where the Confederates gained the upper hand, but it did successfully delay Jackson's arrival by a day. This would be the first battle in a week of constant combat. On the morning of the 26th, Jackson attacked Fitzjohn Porter's V Corps and drove them from their positions around the town of Mechanicsville. Porter's Corps retreated in good order to a new defensive line behind the small hamlet of Gaines Mill, using Boson's Creek, which flowed from north to south into the Chickahominy, as a natural defensive barrier. Jackson's Corps set up camp that night in the fields on the other side of Boson's Creek and was reinforced that night by a further 30,000 men of Longstreet's Corps. Lee's plan was to pin Porter, who was separated from the rest of the Union Army by the Chickahominy River, against the river, destroy his command, and then drive the significantly weakened Union Army southwards, pinning them against the James River and destroying them in turn. If it worked, McClellan's entire command would be killed or captured, leaving Lee able to turn his attention to Pope's Army of Virginia, still waiting at Manassas Junction. The stage was set, and the bloodiest battle of the Peninsula Campaign was about to begin as Porter's Corps would be forced to fight for its very survival against overwhelming odds. Porter's Corps, although outnumbered two to one by the Confederates opposing them, was one of the most experienced units in McClellan's army, and uniquely qualified for the task ahead. Most of Porter's men had fought at Manassas, and half of his corps was composed of U.S. regular troops, career soldiers who were experts in the art of war. Porter's position was also a good one. Boson Creek, while less than six inches deep, was muddy and difficult to cross in formation, meaning that as Confederate units would cross the creek, they would lose all cohesion slowing down their attack. What's more, the creek had carved a steep valley, which, being heavily wooded on both sides, provided lots of cover and would further hamper Confederate movements. Porter deployed his corps along the creek, anchoring his left flank on a bend in the creek and his right in a patch of woods that guarded his main escape route across the Chickahominy. He deployed General Sykes' division of regulars on the right, that flank being more vulnerable, and General Morrill's division on the left. The divisions deployed in three lines. The first line was deployed at the bottom of the valley along the banks of the creek, the second about 30 yards further up the valley wall, and the third at the crest of the ridge. The deployment allowed each line to fire over the heads of the other in front, meaning that advancing Confederates while engaging one line would be taking fire from all three. Porter deployed his artillery in a clearing behind the three lines at the top of the hill. As dawn broke on the morning of the 27th of June, 1862, the 4th Michigan assumed its position in the line, directly in the center. The regiment, raised in Adrian, Michigan a year earlier, had among its ranks around 20 Hillsdale College students. They had fought at Manassas, and later in the war would distinguish themselves in combat, a few even winning the Medal of Honor. But at Gaines Mill, these men had no reputation to uphold, only one to gain. On the far left, another Hillsdalian, John Crane, took up positions with the 1st Michigan Infantry. Both units would see heavy fighting in the battle to come. The Confederate attack was delayed by the late arrival of Jackson's and Longstreet's corps in the field, and the battle only began in earnest around 2.30 p.m. when Ambrose P. Hill's division advanced down into the hollow. The brunt of the attack fell on the center of the line, where the 4th Michigan and other regiments poured volley after volley into the Hill's men as they descended down the opposite slope and made their way across the creek. Hill's men were slaughtered by the fire from the three Union lines and were not able to cross the creek. 
Hill retreated his division back up the ridge and out of range of Union guns, but not before losing 2,000 of his men against the entrenched Union positions. General Hill needed reinforcements, and at 3 p.m. he got them when the 1st Division of Jackson's Corps, led by General Richard Ewell, arrived. Ewell's men formed into battle line alongside Hill's division and some elements of Longstreet's corps, which was also beginning to arrive, and made a second attack across the river at around 3.30 p.m. Once again, the Confederate troops were ravaged by Union gunfire as they cautiously made their way down the steep and tree-studded slope of the ridge. Union artillery fired briefly at the opposite slope, with shells exploding overhead, raining shrapnel and splinters down from the tree canopy. The second attack focused primarily on the right flank, where Sykes' regulars beat the Confederates back across the creek, inflicting heavy losses. The 4th Michigan, being placed just left of the regulars, also helped fight off this attack. The Confederates had been forced out of the hollow for a second time. After the failure of the second attack, the Confederates were both frustrated and determined. Frustrated that only one Union Corps was successfully holding them off, and determined to send that Corps into oblivion. By the early evening, the entirety of Longstreet's and Jackson's corps had arrived on the field, along with General Lee, who now personally took command of the battle. Lee made preparations for what he hoped would be the final assault, lining up all 57,000 men he had there against the 30,000 men of Porter's corps opposing him. At 7 p.m., as the sun drew low in the sky, Lee ordered the third assault to begin. Along the entire front, 50,000 men simultaneously descended towards Boson Creek and the Union line. For the third time, the Confederates were met with fierce resistance, hundreds going down in seconds from repeated Union volleys. However, this time the Confederates managed to make a breakthrough. In the center, Brigadier General John Hood's Texas Brigade, assisted by William Whiting's division, braved the fire and slammed into the Union trenches. A short melee followed before the Union troops, exhausted and tired from the afternoon's fighting, fell back up the ridge toward the artillery. The Texans poured through the gap, and Lee, noticing the breakthrough, ordered yet more troops to take advantage of the gap in the Union center. At the same time, seeing his men fleeing in disarray towards the Chickahominy River, General Porter began making preparations for his corps to evacuate across the river and toward the safety of the rest of McClellan's army. The men on the line, however, only found out about the breakthrough when Confederate bullets began coming at them from all sides. For the Union troops in the center and on the left, including around 20 Hillsdalians, the only objective now was survival. General Daniel Butterfield, commanding a brigade on the Union left, organized a breakout, even as Confederate troops tried to cut off his only route of escape by advancing around both of his flanks. Butterfield led his brigade from the front, leading his men out from the encirclement and fighting their way back to the artillery only 200 yards behind them, Hillsdalian John Crane among them. For his actions in saving the brigade, Butterfield would be later awarded the Medal of Honor. Meanwhile, the 4th Michigan, fighting to the right of the breakthrough, turned its line to face the new threat. The 4th stood their ground until they saw Confederate troops moving to cut off their escape route. Only then did they begin retreating, and in good order, back towards the Chickahominy. One of the men in the regiment observed how the Hillsdalians fought in the battle and later remarked, How like hell them college boys did fight! The men of the 4th didn't give an inch until they had to, and the Hillsdalians among them more than lived up to that standard. The Confederates only had a few minutes to take advantage of the breakthrough, however, as sunset came upon them and confused the whole situation. In twilight, many Union units were able to escape encirclement and make their way to the Chickahominy River, where an anxious General Porter was waiting for them. The Fifth Corps had survived, even if it was battered beyond recognition by the day's fighting. The losses at Gaines Mill were frightening. For Porter, just shy of 900 killed, 3,000 wounded, and 3,000 captured. 
Almost a quarter of his command in total was taken out of the fight. For the Confederates, it was even worse. 1,500 killed and 6,500 wounded. But they had carried the day. After the battle, General Daniel Butterfield, who with his brigade in tow had narrowly escaped destruction while suffering horrifying losses, composed a song. It was a bugle call, one to replace the standard end-of-day call that the army had adopted. As he wrote it, he thought only of the Battle of Gaines Mill and of the many men lost under his command that day. While the haunting song is famous today, few know of its even more haunting origins. McClellan was shaken by the battle, and that night decided to evacuate the peninsula. Over the next four days, yet more battles would be fought as Lee drove the retreating army back towards the James River. By the end of June, Lee had pinned McClellan against the James River at Harrison's Landing, from which McClellan began evacuating his army. The peninsula campaign had come within miles of the Confederate capital, but due to the amazing skill and luck of Robert E. Lee, it ended a costly failure. McClellan's army sailed back to Washington, D.C. to lick its wounds. Some of his corps were sent from Alexandria to Manassas to reinforce General Pope's Army of Virginia, which Lincoln hoped would fare better than McClellan's Army of the Potomac. That was the last full measure with Carter McNish on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Join us next time where we will discuss the climactic and hectic struggle that was the Second Battle of Bull Run.